remember those days. If you don't have a sovereign Savior, if you don't have a God who has absolute undisputed dominion over everything, how do you even begin to make sense out of life, let alone of the crises that are in your life? So I searched online and I looked at credible websites looking for what the world has to say about how to handle stress and fear and pressure and anxiety. And one website in particular had a number of ways, 10 of them, and there are three of these that I wanted to share with you. Here is how this very credible website proposes how to deal and kill anxiety, fear, and pressure. Number one, they said, imagine the worst. Number two, look at the evidence. And number three, visualize a happy place. Imagine the worst, look at the evidence, visualize a happy place. By imagine the worst, the article simply meant when you're afraid, try to picture the worst thing that could happen to you. And the rationale is it could be worse. And once you come to grips with that, then you'll have less fear. Number two, look at the evidence. Look at the evidence. What they meant was be logical, be reasonable, look at the facts, be objective. You're probably blowing things out of proportion. You're probably exaggerating things. And when you understand the facts, then you will be less fearful and anxious, which isn't terrible advice. But then number three, visualize a happy place. And I thought they were joking, but they weren't. They were serious. Visualize a happy place. Take a moment, they said, close your eyes. Imagine a place of serenity and calm and beauty and happiness, walking on the beach, snuggled in a blanket, Call a happy moment from childhood, and that, they claim, will soothe your soul and calm your fears. Imagine the worst. Look at the evidence. Visualize a happy place. My point is very simply this. The prophets give us a better way. The prophets give us a better way. You, you, don't, you don't just... You, you don't imagine the worst thing that could happen. You imagine the best thing that absolutely will happen at the end of the age. You don't merely look at the evidence. You look at the text, at the sacred text of Holy Scripture, of what God has spoken and revealed. And you don't visualize a happy place. You look at the text and you see the happiest place on earth forever Ever, and it is in the kingdom and beyond in the new heavens and the new earth. That is the strategy the prophets give. That's exactly the strategy Isaiah gives in chapter 54. Like he's done dozens and dozens of times already. Isaiah fast forwards us into the future and shows us the end. He gives a glimpse of what's to come in chapter 54. And it's not just a happy place, but the happiest of places forever. And it is the kingdom of the Messiah on earth in the future with every single terror of this fallen world reversed and removed. That's how you deal with fear. That's how you cope with anxiety. You go to the text and you see what God has prepared for those who love him, and it's called the kingdom. Because here's Israel. Here's Israel at the time Isaiah is writing, and surrounded by fears. They're ripped from home. They're, they're rotting in Babylon. Here they are without a king, without a land, without a temple, 
Very few believers, the promises of God literally hanging by a thread. Now is the time to panic. Now is the time to fear. And yet that is why chapter 54 exists. To show these people that despite what they deserved, it is not over for them. There is a way for the giant mess of the planet to be fixed. And it will be fixed because chapter 54 shows us that it will be fixed. Because you understand, that's what we have on our hands here is eschatology. And that's what you give to a people of faded hope and grim despair. You give them eschatology. And I have not grown weary talking about eschatology. As long as Isaiah is going to talk about it, I'm going to preach on it because you understand what that is, is a stake in the ground. It is a shield for war. It is an anchor of the soul. It is a refuge for the frightened. I mean, if what Isaiah says is true and it is true, then that is how to deal with the fears of life. Get this, the future is the hope to deal and cope with the fears of life. If you get anything this morning, it is that the future is the hope to deal and cope with the fears of life. Because you think about it, you think about it, the sorrows of this present life, they have an expiration date. But the joys of the kingdom do not. You, you understand, you will fear your last fear. You will sin your last sin. You will grieve your last grief and everything sad will be no more. And that radically alters how we view our lives in the present. So here we go. This morning, I want you to see from our text, three dramatic reversals, three dramatic reversals that we will enjoy in the kingdom of the Messiah. Meaning there are things we know and suffer today that we will not know or suffer in the kingdom tomorrow. So three Dramatic reversals that we will enjoy in the kingdom of the Messiah, which come from chapter 54, which has three parts. If you have your notes, you could follow along. Part one. Part one. I'm calling the restoration of a depleted people. The restoration of a depleted people. Because you understand, and this is not hard to believe given current events, but in the future, get this, the people of Israel will be almost darn near not quite extinct, almost. In the coming tribulation, they will be hunted and hounded and harassed, driven into hiding, and yet they will not be endangered because God will preserve his people he has predestined. And listen very carefully, although they will look depleted and defeated when Christ arrives at the end of the age, they will be restored and replenished and reconstituted as a nation. That's exactly what Isaiah is about to reveal to us. And yet before we see that in the text, remember structure, remember organization. The book of Isaiah is highly logical and organized. And you remember, I hope, that chapters 49 through 55 are a logical unit with a message, and it's not hard to see what that message is. You remember, I hope, that chapters 49 through 55 alternate back and forth between poems about the Messiah and the salvation he will bring. Do you remember that? Servant poem, salvation for the world. Servant poem, salvation for the world. 
And since we saw in chapter 53, which is the greatest prophecy of the death of Christ in the pages of scripture, that brings us to chapter 54, which is the salvation he will bring at the end of the age. Let's begin in verses one through three. Look at the text. Notice that first word, rejoice. Rejoice, O barren woman who did not give birth. Break forth with joy and shout aloud, you who did not conceive, for the sons of the desolate one will be more than the sons of the one who was married, says Yahweh. Make broad the place of your tent. Lengthen the curtains of your dwelling places. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords, strengthen your pegs, for to the right, to the left, you will spread out, and your, says seed, or offspring will possess the nations and will inhabit the desolate cities. Now, a couple things you probably knew and noticed. Number one, the audience being addressed is the people of Israel, who at the time Isaiah is writing, listen very carefully, they were rotting in exile, and they seriously thought that God was done with them. That it was over for them. That God had canceled the covenants. That he had filed for divorce. You see, what they were, were a people of faded hope and grim despair. And yet, number two, you notice that Israel is described as a barren woman who has no children. See that there, verse 1, the barren woman who did not give birth. The, The deserted woman who did not conceive a child. That's why the title of the sermon is, The Barren Woman Shouts for Joy. Because the day was is coming when there would be so few people of Israel left in Israel that she would be like a barren woman. The Jews would be so scattered over the planet in hiding, in sin, in apostasy, in unbelief that the land, the country would be like a barren woman who has no more children. And you have to understand that day has not yet come for Israel. It has not yet come. I mean, things are bleak, and we know that. We can see that. It is clear. It is in the news. And yet, the worst is yet to come. Daniel 7, Revelation 12 are clear. In the tribulation, the Satan and the Antichrist, this diabolical duo will go after them like lions hunting a herd of antelope and it will be brutal and it will be bloody and from every human angle it will look like game over for the people of Israel. But the prophets tell another tale, don't they? See, in their miserable state in the tribulation, the nation of Israel, endangered and depleted though they will be, they will be spared and they will repent. Zechariah 12.10 shows their repentance. Hosea chapter 2 shows their remarriage to Yahweh. Micah 7 shows their forgiveness. Romans 11.26, all Israel will be saved. And when the King Messiah returns, here's the point, when the King Messiah returns, returns to build his kingdom, what's he going to do? He is going to summon his people home. And here's the point. As they enter through the gates of the city and fill again the streets of Jerusalem replenished and restored, what are they going to do? 
What does verse 1 say they are going to do? First word in the verse. What are they going to do? They're going to rejoice. Rejoice, O barren woman. That's what chapter 54 is about. A future moment when the land, like a barren woman, is filled again with children, not wicked apostate children who will break her heart again. But repentant, rescued, redeemed, forgiven children who love their Messiah and love their God. This day has not yet come to pass, but it is going to come to pass. Look at verse 1. I love how noisy and joyful it is. Rejoice, O barren woman who did not give birth. Break forth with a shout and rejoice or shout aloud, you who did not conceive, for many will be the sons of the desolate one more than the sons of the one who was married, says Yahweh. I mean, can you see what's being described here? An apostate people almost wiped out of existence, gathered together, shouting for joy. They used to be barren and bereaved and depleted, spiritually infertile. But notice verse 1, the sons of the desolate one, that's Israel, will be more than the sons of the married one, which is just a vivid way to say that they will be restored and replenished and redeemed. And the idea seems to be they will be huge. So many people will come home. You understand, this didn't happen after Babylon. About half the people came back after Babylon. This did not happen in 1948. It has not yet happened, but it is going to happen. And here's the thing. They, they've never had full possession of the land, but one day they will have full possession of the land. Look at verse 2. Make broad the place of your tent and stretch out the curtains of your dwelling places. Do not hold back. Make long your cords, strengthen your pegs, verse 3, for to the right and to the left you will spread out. And your offspring will possess the nations and will inhabit the desolate cities. I mean, you can see what this is, can't you? You can see what this is. This is the nation of Israel in the future taking full possession of the land that God promised all the way back in Genesis 13. Listen very carefully. And Yahweh, this is Genesis 13, and Yahweh said to Abram after Lot departed from him, lift up your eyes and see from the place that you are standing to the north and to the south, to the east and the west for all of the land which you see I will give to you and to your offspring ad olam forever. And I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, which a man is not able to count it, so will your offspring be. Arise, go to the land to its length and to its breadth, for I will give it to you. And here, in chapter 54, is when they get it. In the future. It will be theirs, and I think the text is clear. Verses 2 and 3, they, the Jews will be like the sand of the sea. They will have the land that God has promised. They'll be fruitful and multiply. They'll have to build bigger homes and add more rooms and keep building neighborhoods to accommodate the people. 
In verse 3, to the right, to the left, they will spread out. They will take possession of the nations, meaning they will take back the land that rightfully belongs to them. They will fill empty cities, live in homes left vacant after the tribulation. One writer describes the future scene like this. These images, he said, depict an explosive expansion of the people of God, thus assuring the prophet's audience that God cares for them. Barrenness and hopelessness will be no more, for there will be so many people that there will be no place to put them all. Not a bad problem to have after the hell that the tribulation, tribulation is going to be. And at this point, you could rightly ask the question, well, that's great. That's great. That's beautiful. That's profound. That's, that's beautiful. That's good for them. It's got nothing to do with me. I mean, if we're not Israel and we are not Israel, what do I care? I mean, good for them, but what, what power or relevance does their future restoration have to do with my life now? And that's a good question, and that's just the thing. It does matter. It is relevant. This really does matter for our lives, and there are three reasons for that. Number one, this matters because we are physically going to be here when this all goes down. What I mean is we will return with Christ in resurrected, glorified bodies to rule the earth, and we will watch this event go down with our very own eyes, and that makes it relevant. Number two, this matters. This really matters because we so see the gracious nature and the faithful character of God. Do we not? I mean, do we not see his grace here? To a wicked people who deserve his wrath? Do we not see his faithfulness here to keep the covenants that he made with Israel, to keep the promises that he made to his chosen people? I mean, think about how beautiful this is, how, how romantic and dramatic this is, that God will keep the loftiest of promises to the lowliest of people. That where sin abounded in Israel, redeeming grace will abound all the more to Israel. And therein lies the guarantee that he will keep his promises to us. But number three, this matters because chapter 53 is all about Jesus Christ, is it not? And chapter 54 is what Jesus Christ will do. You understand Christ is not just the church's savior. He is also Israel's Messiah. And Jesus loves them just as much as he loves us. And so get this, when we savor, enjoy the salvation of the Jews, we are in that moment giving glory to the Messiah who will save them. Part two. Part two, I call the redemption of the deserted nation. The redemption of the deserted nation, because here's the thing, and this is so beautiful. You can imagine, if you were a Jew in the future, coming home to claim your kingdom given to you, and yet there was in your people's history 3,000 years of rebellion and defiance and sin and idolatry and disobedience and apostasy, not to mention the very murder of the Messiah who came to save you. Your people had murdered the prophets. They persecuted the apostles. They persecuted the church. 
They mocked Christianity and became a largely secular people hostile to the gospel. If that was your history, you would think that Christ is going to rake you over the coals when you get there. Shame you. Humiliate you live on TV before he begrudgingly gives you the kingdom. And yet that is profoundly not going to happen because God is a God of stunning grace and incredible compassion even to those who killed his son. Look at verses 4 and 5. Do not fear. Why? For you will not be ashamed. Do not be disgraced for you will not be humiliated. Why? For the shame of your, and it should say, youth. For the shame of your youth, you will forget. And the reproach of your widowhood, you will remember no more. For literally, the Hebrew says, the one who married you is the one who made you. Yahweh of hosts is his name. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He shall be called the God of all the earth. And that is why we love God, isn't it? At least one of the 10,000 reasons why we love God, namely for his lavish grace for guilty sinners. That's exactly what this is. Look again at verse 4. Do not fear. Do not fear. Why? For you will not be ashamed. Do not be humiliated. Do not be disgraced. For you will not be humiliated. I mean, I mean, can you see what's happening here? God can read their minds. Verses 2 and 3 just describe their coming home to Zion, and yet that has the potential to be a little awkward because all Israel has done for the last 3,000 years of their history, uh, of their existence, is sin and rebel and force his hand to break them. And yet what does verse 4 say? Do not fear, O my people. Do not be anxious. Don't worry, why? Because you will not be ashamed. When you get to the kingdom, you will not be disgraced. Because verse 4, the shame of your youth you will forget, and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. And we know exactly what he means, don't we? Youth and widowhood, you know what that is? That's a vivid metaphorical way to describe their entire history as a people. The youth was their early days, Exodus Numbers, Joshua, Judges, when they first entered the land. The widowhood, I think, began in 722 B.C. when the Assyrian kingdom destroyed the northern kingdom. And 586 B.C. when Babylon destroyed the south. And so you think about it, from infancy to elderly, the people of Israel, just one giant checkered past and scandal after another. And yet he says, all of those scandals and all of that shame and all of that sin, you will forget. All of a history of idolatry, your spiritual prostitution, as Ezekiel so eloquently says, you played the whore, you will remember no more. Not because their sins don't matter, because they do matter. But precisely because Yahweh will forgive them. Their criminal record will be canceled and deleted. Their, their, their sins will be expunged. 
They won't remember their iniquities because God won't remember their iniquities. They will forget their sins because God will forget their sins. Remember chapter 43, verse 25? Yahweh says, I, I will wipe out your transgressions and your sins. I will not remember. And yet we have to pause and we have to say this. We cannot forget, can never forget that the reason, and I mean the only reason that Yahweh would or could forgive them or us is precisely because of the sinless, sin-bearing Savior who died in the place of sinners, right? That's what chapter 53 was all about. Pierced for transgressions, crushed for iniquities. Do you remember this? He bore the sin of many, and on that basis alone, you and I and Israel are forgiven and cleansed and righteous and reconciled to God. No condemnation now, I dread, for Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold, I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. That's why verse 5, Yahweh will be their husband once again. Look at the text. Literally, the Hebrew says, for the one who married you is the one who made you. Yahweh of hosts is his name. Separated for a time, but not divorced. Estranged for a while, but not broken apart. Yahweh will get his lover back through the redemption of his son and never once will he rub his wife's face in the sins of her past. And never once will he do that to his bride, the church. Even though we deserve eternal shame and condemnation, beloved, Christ is not going to rake our souls over the coals because of our sin. You see, if you belong to Christ, it's never, it's never going to happen. It's not even going to come up in conversation. Not because they don't matter, but because there was a ransom that was paid. What love could remember no wrongs we have done Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. And then notice in the text, more grace. Heaps and and heaps of lavish grace. Look at the promise to Israel, verse 6. This will be different than your translation. Stay tuned. Watch out for this. Although, although you were like an abandoned woman and deeply grieved in spirit, Yahweh will call you and a wife of one's youth, although you were forsaken, says your God. Again, I know your version says it different than that, but I believe the Hebrew grammar indicates that God is making a contrast. You were this, you will be this. 
Instead of for, I believe the text should say although. Although Israel was like an abandoned wife and deeply grieved in spirit, although she was this notice at the end of the age, what does it say Yahweh will do? He will call them. He will call them. That Hebrew word can also mean to summon, to invite. And yet the question is, what exactly will he invite them to? To a wedding feast, of course. In the kingdom, held in their honor, in Zion, Isaiah 25, verse 6, Revelation 19, 7. And notice verse 6, although they had been abandoned for a time, notice what it says, they will be to God, notice, like the wife of one's youth. This is incredible. Meaning, when Israel repents and comes back home at the end of the age, it won't be like a marriage on the rocks or an angry couple sitting in counseling. No, in fact, it'll be something more like a honeymoon. A young couple in love at the beginning of their journey together forever. Such will be the joy between Yahweh and Christ and the people of Israel. In fact, in chapter 62, verse 5, it says this. Like the joy of a husband over his bride, so your God will rejoice over you. And you understand, we will be here on the planet to see that and to share in it because we too are the bride of Christ, are we not? And yet look at the promise in verses seven and eight, more, more grace unleashed. I mean, you could totally tell here, God is just pulling every single card he can to move his apostate people to repentance. Look at the text. For a little while I abandoned you, but with great compassions I will gather you. In a flood of rage, I hid my face from you for a while. But with eternal loving kindness, I will have compassion on you, says Yahweh, your Redeemer. Do you like poetry? I like poetry. I like Hebrew poetry. And the thing about Hebrew poetry is that Hebrew poetry loves parallels. Parallels. Same thing said in two different ways, and you can see two different sets of parallels in the text. One negative, one positive. Notice the negative. Verse 7, notice very carefully. For a little while I abandoned you. Verse 8, I hid my face for a moment. See the parallel? And yet the question is, when does he mean? When is a little while? When did this moment begin and how long did this moment of anger and rage and abandonment go? And I think this moment began 2,700 years ago in 722 BC when the Assyrian kingdom moved in and destroyed the north. And I think this moment of anger and abandonment upon Israel is still happening even as we speak. Even as we speak. God is Hiding his face from Israel. The flood of his anger is upon them to this very day. It is 2,700 years and counting. And it will continue into the great tribulation. Where sometime in the middle towards the end. Sometime before Christ returns. It will be over. And this verse will be fulfilled. Which brings us to parallel number two. The positive. 
For a while I abandoned you. For a moment I hid my face. Verse 7, notice carefully. But with great compassions I will gather you. Verse 8. With eternal loving kindness I will have compassion on you. Do you see the parallel? That's what's coming for Israel. That's the promise. Notice very carefully, with great compassion. Literally the Hebrew, great compassions. Plural. I will gather you. The very least that means is that when he brings them back at the end of the age to bring them to the land that he promised to give them, he will do so not begrudgingly or out of obligation or through his teeth, but he will do so with compassion. Compassions, plural, and love. You see that there? Chesed is the word in Hebrew. Loving kindness, covenant love. Sovereign, electing, merciful love and affection for his people. And notice, it is, look at the text, it is eternal. It is eternal. Meaning it does not have an expiration date. They will never be lost again. Put it this way, God will never be angry with them again. Look at verse 9. For this... This time in the future, this is like the days of Noah to me. When I swore that I would not bring the waters of Noah again over the earth, thus I swear that I will not bring my anger upon you and I will not rebuke you. Do you see his point? After the flood, God promised that he would never destroy the earth again with a flood of water. And after Yahweh restores the Jews at the end of the age, he will never be angry with them again. How can that be? God, don't, don't make promises you can't keep. You know what these people are like. Their entire history, since you saved them out of Exodus, they have been nothing but a pain in your holy side. And yet those days are coming to an end. Because get this, God is going to supernaturally transform his people from the inside out. Look at verse 10. Although the mountains shall be moved and the hills shall be shaken, my loving kindness will not be moved from you and my covenant of peace will not be shaken. See that? And the key word there that you need to zero in on is the word covenant. See that? Covenant of peace. A promise that God makes that, that produces peace between God and his people. And this covenant is, by the way, the very same covenant Jesus was talking about in the upper room when he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. He says, same covenant. This is salvation. This is the new covenant. That should mean something to you. Because you know the difference. Do you know the difference between the old and the new covenant, you know the difference between those, don't you? The old covenant gave people commands to obey. But the new covenant so transforms the human heart so that it can obey. Hear the difference? 
And this new covenant that affects a change inside the people of Israel and makes them obedient is exactly what he means. Listen to Jeremiah 31. I don't remember if it's in your notes, but here's Jeremiah 31. Listen carefully. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. A new covenant, he says. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to lead them from, the out, from out of Egypt. Not like that. The one which they broke and I was angry with them. No. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. Here it is. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their heart and I will be their God and they will be my people. That's the covenant. That's the covenant bought by the blood of the Redeemer. And in the wisdom of God, the Jews have not yet embraced that Redeemer. But when they do, when they do, this will be the covenant God will make and the days of disobedience will be over and the anger will be over. And that's great for them. It's great for Israel, right? I mean, happily ever after for them. Well, what's that got to do with me? And that's just the thing. It has everything to do with you. You know why? Listen very carefully. If you are in Christ, you already have what Israel needs the most. If you are in Christ, you already have what Israel needs the most. If you have trusted Christ, get this. You already have the infinite blood-bought treasures of salvation purchased by the Son. They are yours. Your souls are secure. Your sins are paid for. You know that, right? You are born again and made alive and freed from sin and reconciled to God through his son. God rejoices over you like a husband rejoices over his wife on the day of his wedding. And one day, one day, the Savior will call your name and you will rise from the dead never to sin or die again. And you will enter into the joy of the kingdom. And the point is, the things you really need the most are already yours in Christ. The most important thing you possess, I'm not even kidding, is the covenant of peace purchased by the Son. The most important agreement and, and contract that you have in your life is not the purchase agreement for your house or the warranty for your car or your marriage certificate or your birth certificate, but rather it is the covenant of salvation signed and sealed with the blood of the Son. And here's the thing, the best and the rest is yet to come. My point is very simple. This, if you're going to make it through this life with your faith intact, you have got to know the covenants. 
You've got to know what Christ purchased with his death. You've got to know this stuff. You've got to know what Christ accomplished because you understand there are fears and there are trials and there are disappointments in this life for which the only, the deepest realities can sustain us. And it does not get any deeper than the treasures of salvation purchased by the Son. I've said it before, you need to saturate your soul with the glory of the cross. You've you got to know Isaiah 53 and you've got to master it. You got to know Ephesians 1 and 2, and you got to master it. You got to know Hebrews 7 through 10, and you got to master it. You got to know the entire book of Romans, and you got to master it. You have to master the cross, or should I say, be mastered by the cross? Because therein lies the fountain of our faith that helps us persevere, which brings us finally to part three. Part three which I call the renovation of a devastated kingdom. The renovation of a devastated kingdom. Now, I don't know if you remember, I'm sure you do, but the <laughs> Back to the Future films, I'm not recommending those. I'm just saying those movies exist, and they're about time travel, okay? So you remember that? And let's pretend for a moment, so let's suspend our, our rationality and pretend for a moment that time travel was a real thing. And after church, you go outside to find Doc Brown and Marty McFly waiting in the parking lot with their time machine, ready to give you a tour to the future. And where they take you is into the future global kingdom of the Messiah, let's say. And they take you to the future, to the kingdom. And let's say they showed you an entire planet in subjection to Christ. And they showed you the nations worshiping, living in peace, the nations redeemed. Let's say they took you to a world in which the curse of sin was lifted and, and paradise regained. Let's say they drove you into Jerusalem. And you could see a, see a city of peace and, and joy and the Jews repentant and in love with Jesus Christ and even King Jesus himself there in the city. And, and if you could see all of that and when you got back from your trip to the future, do you think your faith would be stronger? Do you think you would live differently than you do now? I think you would. I think you would, and the point is very simply, verses 11 through 17 is your time and travel machine, and Yahweh is the pilot. He gives the tour of the future, and he only gives us glimpses. He only gives us little, little clips of the future, but they will fortify our faith nevertheless, and this unfolds in three parts here. Three parts. So first, let's look at the remodeling of the city. The remodeling of the city. Look at verses 11 and 12. Yahweh calls out there. Look at verse 11. He says, Oh, afflicted one. Oh, storm-tossed one, not comforted. Stop there. Now, you know, you know he's not talking to you, right? He's not talking to Gentiles. He's not talking to the church. He's talking to Israel. And yet we feel like this sometimes, don't we? We, we know what it's like to feel afflicted. We know what it's like to have a storm-tossed soul. We know what it's like to have a wearied soul in need of comfort. And so although these verses are not directly to you as church Gentile people, it will fortify our souls nevertheless. 
Notice, notice what's coming in the future. Verse 11, Yahweh is speaking. Behold, I will cover your stones. Some versions say antimony. I don't know what that means. The word is cement. I will cover your stones in cement. And I will lay your foundation in sapphires. Verse 12, I will make your battlements as rubies and your gates as stones of beryl or diamonds, some versions say, and all of your walls will be precious stones. Now, we're on the tour, we're in the time machine. If you would all kindly look out the window to your left, you can totally tell that verses 11 and 12 describe the architectural features of Jerusalem. Not, not as it looks today, but as it will look in the future. And you can tell what God describes here is aesthetic in nature. Can you see that? Artistic in beauty, arresting in appearance. Look at verse 11 again. Behold, I will cover your stones in cement, and I will lay your foundations in sapphires. In other words, I will pave your streets and beautify your buildings, and I see no reason not to take this literally. I don't. When the Messiah returns, he's going to reign in Jerusalem. Why not make it a city fit for a king? He will make the city fit for a king. Old jagged roads, smooth and polished, building foundations made of sapphire. What's wrong with that? Verse 12, there's debate about this, like what are battlements? Actually, the best scholarship indicates that what's described there in verse 12 are minarets. You know what minarets are? Like, like tall, pointy things on the top of towers. That's what this is. And they're made of ruby and they gleam in the sun. The gates of the city made of, of beryl. It's actually a, a turquoise stone arresting in its beauty. The walls of the city made of precious stones. Literally in the Hebrew, avne chefetz, stones of pleasure, it says. I've been to Rome. I've been to Prague. I've seen pictures of Venice and Paris and Barcelona, and yet the most beautiful cities in the world will be but slums compared to the glory of Jerusalem. That's not all. Next on the tour is the redemption of the people. There is the remodeling of the city. Now the redemption of the people, because here's the thing. In the future kingdom, it won't just be the people, the city that's changed. Spoil of the ending there. It will be the people that's changed. Look at verses 13 and 14. And all of your sons will be taught of Yahweh. And great will be the peace of your sons, verse 14, in righteousness you will be established, be far from oppression, for you will not fear, and from terror, for it will not come near to you. In verse 13, do not miss that, it says, all of your sons will be taught of Yahweh, all of your sons, all of them, not one will be missing, you see that? And what does that mean? It means very simply Romans eleven twenty six. Pas Israel so thesetai. All Israel will be saved. He goes on in verse thirteen. Grace, great will be the peace of your sons, which the Jews have never ever experienced in their history ever, but they will. Verse fourteen. In righteousness you will be established. Be far from oppression, for you will not fear, and from terror, for it will not come near to you. That first phrase, in righteousness you will be established, is a really big deal. That's a really big deal because what that means is that they will be reconstituted and restored as a nation. And then 
given a place of prominence in the world. And if that happened today, it would be outrageous. But it won't be outrageous then because then they will be righteous. Isaiah 60, verse 21, speaking of Israel, this is in your notes. It says, then all of your people will be righteous and possess the land forever. Chapter 62, verse 2, the nations will see your righteousness. You see the, the difference there? Israel is not the nations. They're not blurred. The nations will see Israel's righteousness and all kings your glory. And then verse 14, end of the verse. The wicked will be gone. Fear will be gone. Terror will be gone. And that's not just in Israel. That will be everywhere. Take a deep breath, beloved. You know, don't you? You know, don't you, the future that awaits? You believe and know, do you not? That things will not always be as they are today? That we are living in the midnight of what soon will become the dawn? That the nightmare of this fallen world will soon be over and we will awaken not to the dream but to the reality of the kingdom? A world so new, so new, in fact, that Christ called it in Matthew 19, 28, the regeneration of all things. The world will be unrecognizable from its present form, which brings us to third on the tour. We're almost done. The removal of the wicked. The removal of the wicked. Because one of the things Yahweh said to Abraham and to David centuries and centuries ago was that the day was coming when all enemy military threats would be removed and destroyed permanently and forever. And verse 15 is when that is fulfilled. Look at the text. If a nation should attack you, Yahweh says, it will not be from me. And whoever attacks you, they will fall because of you. Do you see his point? For centuries and centuries, when enemy armies invaded Israel, it is precisely because God sent that enemy nation to spank his people, right? He used enemy nations as instruments of his judgment. But in the kingdom, those days are over. It will be over. There will be no disobedience to spank them for. And so should any country in the kingdom get cute and try to launch an attack against his people, kind of like the one that's happening right now, Yahweh says, it won't be me that sent them. And should any country try to do that, notice what it says. It says, they will fall because of you. Fall is a military term, meaning to slaughter and be conquered in battle. And then verse 16 is just incredible. A small reminder of his sovereignty to comfort them in the present. Look what he says. Behold, I created the craftsman who blows on the coals of fire and brings out the weapon for its work. I created the destroyer to destroy. That is astonishing. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, yeah, you know the guy? You know the guy that, that makes the weapons? I made him. I created him. You know the guy that fights in the battle, the warrior, the soldier? I made that guy. I created him. 
And the point is he is offering the only real comfort you can have in a fallen world, which is his sovereignty over all things. The point is, listen carefully, there is not one thing that comes against you not in God's control. There is not one person or detail outside of his decree. There is not one single thing that happens to us not ordained by him. And there is nothing that can prevail against us in the end, which is precisely his point in verse 17. In the future kingdom, Yahweh says, every weapon formed against you will not prosper. Every tongue that rises against you in the judgment will be condemned. This is the inheritance of the slaves of Yahweh and their righteousness is from me, declares Yahweh. And you can tell this has to be the future. It has to be because since this was written, countless Jews have been slain and slaughtered and massacred and murdered down to this very day, but that day is coming to an end. So what do we do with this? So much more that could be said, but let me close with three dramatic reversals that we will enjoy in the kingdom. Number one, number one, we will know no sin nor corruption in the kingdom. We will know no sin or corruption in the kingdom. We know sin and corruption really, really well today. We are experts at sin and corruption. And yet, and yet the day is coming when that will be no more. The time is, is coming, beloved. Think about this. When every last remaining molecule of sin in your body and in your soul will be eradicated forever. I don't, I can't imagine what that would be like. That sounds great. And 1 Corinthians 15 is clear. We will rise from the dead, never to sin or die again. And think about it. In the kingdom, we can think whatever we want, and it won't be sin because there will be no sin. We can say whatever we want to anybody, and it won't be sin because we will have no sin. We can do whatever we want in the kingdom, and it won't be sin because we will have no sin. And what does that do but make us hate our sin today all the more and want us to be holy all the more. Number two, number two, we will know no fear nor terror in the kingdom. We will know no fear nor terror in the kingdom. And we know fear and we know terror really well, don't we? We've always known that. And yet there will come a day when we will know it no more. And you think about it, we, many terrors potentially await us in this life, Right? We can't predict, we can't control what is going to happen to us. And while that is cause enough to drive us insane, we know, we know that not one fear in your life today will follow you into the kingdom. Not one. Satan will be bound. Wars will cease. The nations will worship, evil will be restrained, paradise regained, all fear and terror will have an expiration date. And what that does, what that does is free us to face our deepest fears and laugh the laugh of faith, knowing that Jesus Christ has all supremacy over evil and sin. Number three, and we're done. We will know no pain nor sorrow in the kingdom of the Son. We will know no pain nor sorrow in the kingdom. We know it now, and it has long been our companion. But one day, one day, mark my words, everything sad will become unsad. 
All the gloom and sorrow that afflicts our lives today will not follow us into the next life. They're they're only for a moment and they're not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. In fact, the sorrows and pains and the darkness of today will only deepen the joys in the kingdom of tomorrow. And in that day when the king takes back the earth and gives it to his people to rule and reign forever, we too, like the barren woman, will shout for joy and worship the king and the splendor of his glory. And we will, as they say, live happily ever after. Had it not been next on the list to preach, Lord, we would have never chosen to read Isaiah 54 or preach it. And yet we're so glad. We're so glad that it's there. We're so glad that you have spoken and revealed what you have spoken and revealed. Lord, we understand that none of this is meant to be theoretical, but, but all of it is the essence of practical. That what you have revealed for the future, you want to profoundly shape our lives today, and we pray that it would. I pray that we would be a profoundly eschatological people, that we would be people who live with a glow of eternity on our face, that we would see all things through the lens of your sovereignty, your matchless sovereignty that that governs everything that comes to pass and will bring a a glorious future that far exceeds our, our highest expectations. And I pray that this text, even this text, would make us a people of profound hope, eager, willing, passionate, to share the gospel, unashamed with the gospel, declaring the Savior, the very Savior who died for sinners is the very one who will reign as king in the future. And we are so grateful for that. And it's in his mighty and matchless name we pray. Amen.